Welcome to Shelf Builders Podcast. I'm Dustin Porta. I'm here with Matthew Kent. And uh, we're going to get to know you a little bit better by talking about your bookshelves. Matthew, will you? All right. Uh, well, welcome to the show, first of all. <laughs> Thank you much. I appreciate it. Can you tell us a bit about uh, yourself and briefly what books you write? Um, I uh, have lived in and around Atlanta almost my entire life. Um, I work as a real estate appraiser in the real world, and I like to do writing for fiction, science fiction, fantasy, but what's really gotten my attention the past few years has been the lit RPG and the game lit. It just kind of speaks to me. Uh, but I've got a lot of influences from some of the old writers. Um, Heinlein, I absolutely love. Harry Harrison uh, has been a big influence. Uh, David Gimmel. Um, Gimmel is one of my absolute favorites. Um, Can you tell me here? I have children in the background, and I kind of want to write some of the books that I do for them so that uh, they can grow up uh, with that kind of sense of wonder that I did when I was reading. Um, Can you tell me the name of your series and... uh... My series that so I'm far. working on uh, is The Apprentice of Arabella, uh, is a series, and it's Arabella Online. The, uh, the first one, of course, is the first book in the series. Then The Prisoner of Arabella, and I'm currently working on the third book in the series, which is The War of Arabella. Um, I nearly had it completed, but it's important to back up your hard drive. I have learned that lesson now. <laughs> uh, so we are reworking on that, and I actually have gotten a few new ideas to, I hope, make it a lot better. Uh, that can be so um, discouraging. <laughs> I also have a couple of short stories that I've got out. One of them is going to be in the anthology Primal Voices, and I've been told that it's that mine is probably going to be one of the anchor stories, which just blew my mind. Nice. The anthology theme, is it... Sort of like a sword and sorcery theme? No, actually it's not. Believe it, it's uh, about dinosaurs. Oh, okay. Very cool. uh, uh, The story started out um, with the idea of kind of riffing off of one of Heinlein's series, uh, The Star Beast. And this is kind of an alternate take on how John Thomas became the Star Beast's boy. I have a couple of other short stories that I've put out for other anthologies. Um, these uh, are with a company called Raconteur Press, which one of the stories I've sent out for is for Space Cowboys 3 or 4. Anthologies um, is a good way to get into talking about your bookshelf because I grew up reading, uh, I think it was the Dragonlance series, and my favorite book on my shelf was actually a couple of the anthology editions that fit into that series. And I don't know why there's just something about having a little collection of things, a little collection of stories that I feel like they deserve to be on a bookshelf. Uh, How do you feel about that? Do you, do you collect collections of things sometimes? Well, it's strange. I when I started reading and when I grew up, we didn't have any electronic copies. So everything you got was either hardback or softback. 
And that's kind of how we uh, grouped. Um, I remember there was one group of uh, book companies that they would put out hardbacks, but they were cheap quality, but I still have a couple of them. Harry Harrison's. This is one of these that I love to reread it. And, you know, it was uh, Nelson What's the title for people who can't see? Okay. Ah. It is The Stainless Steel Rat, uh, or The Adventures of the Stainless Steel Rat. And, but that's one of my older books that I have. I always I ask have some people if books. the I just, collection uh, that they have is started out when they were a kid and they've held on to it, or if they didn't start building their book collection until they had uh, a house to put it in. Because, you know, that's so, how a lot of us someone are. who lives um, in apartments a lot, I, I let go of a lot of books because I have space constraints, unfortunately. I have entire Rubbermaid bins of books that I have given up because I wasn't going to read them again. I wanted other people to enjoy them. But this is one of the three bookshelves that I have in this house. Some of the books are my wife, some of the books are my kids, but many of them are my own. Talk us, talk us through what's on it, if you please. Okay. Well, I've got one entire shelf. You can see it right here. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons manuals for both 3.5 and uh, 4. I've got a couple manuals from uh, the first edition, which those are getting very hard to find. The shelf up above it are books on art. Some of them are technique books. Some of them are compilations of work to help give me ideas or spark creativity. I think the, the other role, side of that D and D books are a great inspiration. They are. I started with they uh, are. second edition. That was my first. Okay, I got started on first edition back in 1979. And that was before the whole craze of you know, which is great. Oh, it was I already evil it. when I started. <laughs> what? I said it was already evil when I started. Yeah, and um, we, I, I'm of course down in Georgia, Southern Baptist, and you know, just it, it was an interesting time. Um, on doing artwork, I've got books on tarot. I've got books on monsters for, you know, I'm one of the books that I've just started reading for my next series is basic role playing to pick up some ideas to. I like the Vitruvian man on the cover of that. That's mm -hmm. that, very cool. It's actually a much more affordable book than a lot of the others out there. Uh, I got this as a hardback from, uh, well, softback from, uh, Amazon, and this was, I think, $12. But you can get a free copy from their website, which is just a PDF. So, you know, just very, very basic, as they say, basic role-playing. Um, one of the ideas I'm wanting to play with a little bit is, like, they have um, titles and things, so the characters winning titles. And this is actually something I'm working for for a D&D &D group that I'm trying to put together. So that's It reminds me a bit of the uh, second edition mechanics where after you've reached a certain level, your fighter would have uh, 
people just show up and ask to be uh, his squires or or servants or hirelings um, because they have a reputation. And that was something that I think they've gotten rid of. And I kind of miss it being gamified in that way. Well, I think really part of the problem is that Wizards of the Coast has kind of lost track of where it came from. And (laughs) I play magic too. So I, I feel that way doubly. Yeah. Um, they're, they've gone from people that enjoy playing the games to people who want to make money off the games. And when you get that part where all you want to do is make money, you lose the magic. You, you, you lose the fun. And that's what we're seeing. And we sometimes see that uh, in the writing world where all the writer wants is just to make money off of it, not enjoy the actual writing. And... I know many of the writers that I'm friends with, they love the genre. They love reading. They love writing. Mm-hmm. They love somebody going, I read your book, and it was fantastic. You see you know? it in the lit RPG genre, too. And you see it in people who had a passion lose interest in a series, and then it becomes a chore for them. Um, yeah. But, you know, you also see people find the passion again. Uh, it's Yeah. Well, something we all struggle part of it with. is one of the reasons I've been writing some of the other stuff is to help me maintain the passion. I've got one series that I've been working on for about the past three years, and it's completely new, but I keep getting stalled out on it. So it is uh, the, uh, the Sorceress of San Antonio. Modern setting. Young girl finds out that mm-hmm. she is related to Atlanteans. And that she has to fight monsters. See, I think an increased interest in, I guess you call it the urban fantasy genre in the last couple of years. I mean, it's never gone out of style, but uh, I've seen more people getting excited about that sort of Dresden Files style or uh, Rivers of London style. Fantastic. And in a way, this is kind of like that, I guess, except... She's not Mm -hmm. privy to everything that's going on. And the viewer or the reader is actually going to be much more in tune with some of the things going on in the world. And I'm hoping it'll be Oh, that's hard to pull off. Yeah, I can see that. Unfortunately, sometimes my ideas outstrip my skill. But uh, we're working on that. I wanted Uh, to ask you. One of the things I've been doing for the past couple of uh, months is listening to the Writer's Dojo. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. The podcast? It's a podcast. It's uh, with Larry Correa. I love a good writer's podcast. Hmm? I love a good writing podcast. Tell me more about that. His is fantastic. They deal with character. They deal with the business aspect of it. If you're familiar with Larry Correa, you'll know that he's uh, been an independent writer. Uh, He's published his own work. But he's also been picked up by Bane, and uh, his series is Monster Hunter International. Monster Hunter International, yeah. Which yeah, that's I, a fun one to I listen like to. Um, when you, sorry, my brain's all over the place. Uh, I'm still hanging on to a question from five minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> when you're writing lit RPG, you 
and you have these D and D and RPG books behind you, how much of the and you're writing game lit? How much of the game mechanics that you draw inspiration from are coming from tabletop, and how much are coming from a video game background? Actually, much of it comes from the uh, tabletop. I do pull in the video games because I've been a video gamer since. Uh, do you know the TRS-80 mo- Model 3? TRS-8, it, no. It is one of the oldest computers. Uh, came out in 1978-79. We had the game Temple of Apsi, uh on that. And what it was was a roguelike game. And it would create a new dungeon for each one. And if you died, your character died... It would reset the entire game and you'd have to start all the way from the beginning. I love roguelike games, especially <laughs> when they're brutal like that. And it was ASCII, ANSI, all you would get for the things. What It wasn't real graphics. You would get letters for like walls. <laughs> have played everything. We started out uh, with the Sears version of the Atari which that predated Atari by a year. But uh, we started out with that. And then we went all the way up to the ColecoVisions on up to, um, let's see, it was the Tandy 1000. My older brother got that. That was really the beginning of the gaming craze. And most people don't know this, but gaming actually drives the computer development. It's not business software. Business software can run on anything. It's been a very strange, long ride. And I wouldn't miss it for anything. For the gaming that I'm able to do, I prefer games where it's just me. Uh, I also prefer the strategy games. Civilization is great. Master of Magic was a good one. Uh, Master of Orion. Those kind of... That's, yeah, Master of Orion uh, tops, one of my favorites. Uh, did you ever play Alpha Centauri, Sid Meier? Um, no, this, I didn't play Civ that, in space. the Survivor one. I remember playing the original Alpha Centauri. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe your Steam account or wherever you are purchasing games these days and what, these what you days keep around? These days I am purchasing them from Steam. Uh, just like just about everybody else does. I don't buy a lot anymore. But uh, the games I've been playing from Steam, uh, Battletech, that's a combat that's one. It's uh, wargaming, basically. Then... Is it mechs? It's battle mechs. Do you still keep any physical games around, like old consoles or... Old uh, CDs from not the 90s? Not really. Um, I've not been into a lot of them. Uh, let's see. One of the games I've got for my son is Dino Fossil Hunter. Let's see. Humankind. That's uh, a lot like Civilization. Treasure Hunter. Let's see. Fallout. Love Fallout. Started with the original. If you've never played the original do it's just one of those you're going to be going really they went there with that um i have that master was of the only one i played and i loved it 
Civilization, Terraria, uh, Wasteland. I got started with the original Wasteland when it came out. Uh, you've probably never experienced it. Uh, back in the 80s, they had code wheels. Do you know what a code wheel was? Code it was wheel. a wheel that no. you'd have to match up one thing with another. It had two wheels. And you'd go through and you would find the word that it would tell you to put into the system so that you could actually play the game. They don't have that now. Oh, I, I can see why. <laughs> that's that's wild. Well, what, what would wind up happening is that one guy would get it, and he would co- photocopy the wheels, you know, one side and the other. Then they'd cut them out, and then he'd sell copies of the game with copies of the wheels. Which, <laughs> wow, that's wild. Again, you don't see that anymore because Steam. No. But, yeah. Now, I know a lot of the other uh, writers, they have much more extensive uh, gaming accounts than I do. Uh, One of the guys that's in the writing group I'm in, he was telling us that he had 1,700 games. I go, how do you have time to play that many games? You you don't. I don't play them. I just have them. (laughs) I think you and I have very similar... Uh, tastes in games because that's that's what I play when I play even though I've kind of pulled back from playing like my biggest post on the lit RPG reddit forum was a post talking about uh, MUDs you know multi-user dungeons text-based uh, I remember RPGs. those I loved those uh, we had a uh, uh, nostalgia session over there on uh a Reddit talking about muds. I don't hear a lot of lit RPG authors talking about it. I think because they're generally either uh, younger or older and miss that window where muds were the thing to do. But I'm not sure that's just my no, guess. No, I hit it. Why. Um, I definitely hit that window. I, I don't know. Maybe I was just flung and just went to the right side or whatever, but yeah, I, I remember it. I remember uh, using the modem and uh, having to worry if somebody in the house might pick up the phone. Um, <laughs> Always. I want to continue this tour of your shelves before we run out of time here. Well, for instance, right here. I keep this because I'm hoping my kids will enjoy them. Calvin and Hobbes. The indispensable Calvin Hobbes, the essential Calvin and Hobbes, because I think my kids are going to wind up being a lot like them. I can't wait. I want that. What? I want that book. That's a great one. (laughs) I mean, they're great. Um, They kind of speak to being a kid. Space War, Worlds and Weapons. So this is an artwork book, and it shows work from the 1970s, 1950s, the kind of the hopes of the artist. Then uh, here's another one, Harry Harrison and Malcolm Edwards, Spacecraft and Fact and Fiction. So they start with the Pulp Fiction and they start talking about um, kind of the hopes that they had. Startling Stories, the book covers. 
goes all the way to the Apollo project. Don't know if you can see that. They go to the moon and then they go way beyond it's, the moon. Um, I have books on writing uh, from uh, the Dummies Guide to Writing to the Character Creation Journal. I haven't had anyone talk about uh, keeping books to pass down to their kids yet. You're the first one to mention that. That's a, an interesting angle I hadn't thought of. But one theme we always keep coming back to is people like having things around that are tangible so they don't lose them because as things become more digital and streaming becomes a thing, uh, being able to hold on to something is important. Uh, and I, being able to pass something down uh, yeah. makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, what's going to wind up happening is that a lot of things that you, I, other people hold dear, when they pass, they're going to have their accounts with passwords and probably the way we're going, it'll be locked to some chip that's in our hand. And the day we pass, that's just going to disappear up into the nether. Um, yeah. Actually, there was a writer that did that uh, to a book series that he did or a book that he did that as the person would read it on their computer, the words that they'd already read would disappear. I can't remember who did that. That was in the 1980s, I think. very interesting. Writing science fiction and fantasy, characters and viewpoints, various guides for writing science fiction. I've also got some collectibles up there. Uh, up in the corner right here, you can see uh, cars that I collected because I always liked the Mustangs. I always so ask people the about Johnny the Johnny Lightning and, Ford Mustang. And interesting objects. Oh, neat. Still in the box. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too, is having these, it's nice to have. So I can pass it on to my kids. Because they're not making any more of the first edition Dungeons and Dragons. You know, they're not making any more of the second edition. There are certain things that they'll always make, like Grey's Anatomy. But it's kind of nice to be able to pass it on to my kid and say, yeah, I've used this. I was wondering, is this your office where you keep these these things in for inspiration? This is you my work actual here as well? office for my regular work. Um, like I said, I work as a real estate appraiser, so I actually do have mm -hmm. another, uh, bookshelf over here that has my appraisal industry books for reference. A lot of those have gone to digital work, so I do have a couple of those online. Um, my wife's office is actually further down. So we work both in the basement area, and then, as you heard, the kids have been coming in and out. But, uh, yeah. I've talked to a couple people who, uh, the industries they publish in, some of them were academics, um, the industries they publish in, they're, you know, if you're publishing a paper, it's not in a physical journal anywhere, it's just online now. Yeah. Oh, uh, so that's... That's another thing that is kind of disappearing. Well, the reason this stuff's becoming more precious. That, uh, journals run on such a tight cost basis that not having to print or publish, they save so much money, and they can get it into the hands of their members so much quicker. 
I wanted to ask you, do you remember uh, when Kobo used to partner with indie bookstores? I'm, it was maybe seven years ago. Maybe it was 10 years ago. Kobo used to sell Kobo uh, e-reader tablets before they were big with the app in indie bookstores. And if an indie bookstore sold a tablet, the tablet had a code put on it so that every book that was bought on that um, tablet, a percentage of the sale would go back to the bookstore. I've always no, thought actually, that when they got I rid of that program. That specifically, but I can see that um, as a profit enhancement for them to sell the e-reader. You know? I always thought that was a huge loss for self-published authors or indie bookstores in general, because I feel like we could have got in on it somehow. Um, and there's nothing like that now. Like I can't sell a, a e-reader tablet on my website to my fans and then get a little kickback every time those fans buy someone else's book on there. But I should be able to. There should, I, you can still use affiliate links. There is that. But I feel like we lost something that we had briefly. Uh, well, there there is, but there isn't at the same time. Um, let me see if I can explain this the way I see it. If somebody buys an e-reader from your website, that means that they're probably both engaged with your work and want to buy it. But also, there's going to be other opportunities for them to buy future books or older books from your catalog. Um, realistically, how much would they pay you? I guess what matters is teaching, getting more people to read and encouraging readers to get back well, into that, books. That's, and that's really part of why I want to do this the podcast. challenge and the need right now. Do you know that most adults don't read once a single book once they graduate high school or college? The average is about 12% of the population read after uh, school, uh, either primary or secondary school, college, which it shows so much. And we had to find ways to entice people to read our work and expand out. Um, it, it's really kind of sad. The American language, uh, the vocabulary has changed so much where most people use about 1500 words where previously uh, they would use two to 2500 words um, which admittedly some of them are words that we could stand to, to lose <laughs> but there's something so rich about the language that we almost don't have have you ever read yeah. any uh any of Mark Twain or any of his pithy language towards people. Oh, oh yeah. You don't get that nowadays. You don't get an entertaining insult from anybody. Not that we need to all be doing insults. It's just the juxtaposition of then versus now where we're having to dumb things down for people. As a writer, you try and write for an average of an eighth grade reader where previously you would be trying to write a higher 
for the 10th or 12th grade or somebody that had graduated college. So you don't want to have it too high, but you also don't want to have it too low. Um, I feel the same way about fantasy. Uh, the, or the, the, the fantasy author, uh, Terry Pratchett, I've been getting into him recently. And it's like every page or so, he says something that's so incredibly clever, it just smacks me in the face. I have to put the book down. <laughs> I think well, I said that in the last interview too, but it's true. It's Sometimes well, it is how you say something. It's not always just what you say. Well, it's not only that, but uh, for instance, one of Pratchett's books, and I don't remember which one, has an analogy where one of the characters is complaining about his shoes and how he's always having to buy new shoes every couple of years where a wealthy person buys one pair of shoes that lasts so long. And the reason being is he has the money to be able to afford better quality. So it's quality versus quantity. Um, I can't remember if it's Grimes who says that or Moist who says that, but I think it's Grimes. Yeah. I, rem I remember that metaphor. Mm -hmm. That's also one of the reasons I enjoy Heinlein's work is he says so much with so little. Um, you may have never heard of this story, but he wrote a story called The Man Too Lazy to Fail. And it's absolutely hilarious when one. you read it. It's about a boy who starts out in Missouri, and one day he sees an airplane, and he decides that he wants to get out of Missouri from behind the tail end of a mule. And so he goes into the Navy... And he becomes a pilot. And he has the other idea that he doesn't want to be shot at. He wants to fly uh, a PBY. Mm -hmm. He comes He comes up and develops an um, autopilot for the PBY. So that he can take naps while he's flying. <laughs> so everything he does is to make his life easier. So when he finally leaves the military, he's an admiral. And he retires from Missouri, where he lets the government pay him not to grow anything. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but it's the kind of biting sarcasm that's so well written and so intriguing that you just have to read the rest, the next sentence in it. And you wind up laughing to yourself going, yeah, it's just like that. <laughs> Before I wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about your own series again and okay. what are you writing right now where are you going with it right now um the war for arabella i've been working on it a little bit um now in the last chapter in the last book they have interacted with a quantum computer that has actually carried their minds back in time and they are still stuck in the game, but before the actual game development started, they're still they're stuck oh. in a government computer. And the government huh. has found out that they are in there and is very disturbed that there are players in the game that they have just created, and they want to know where they came from. I've never heard that before. That's, that's unique. What's happening in the series is that there are two... All, um, artificial intelli intelligence is actually, I'm calling them artificial sentience, 
they're fighting each other and using the main character as a proxy. The main character also in the last book had shared his secret with people that were being imprisoned inside of an AI prison, and now they're out and about. Uh, they're still stuck in the prison, but you do a lot of that is going to be happening for you. World. A lot of pushing the boundaries of uh, what people are allowed to do outside of the game. It's neat. Well, as a writer, we're supposed to try and take ideas and build on them. And I feel like some of the things I'm doing now is building on what other writers have done. Um, some of the older writers and some of the new. Well, it sounds unique. It is, it is really hard to find a way to raise the stakes. I know when your character can just get killed and respawn, it doesn't always feel like there's a threat. So, yeah. um, you know, every lit RPG author has to find a different way to do that. <clears throat> it's interesting to see where things are going. Uh, well, I guess I should I wrap up soon be. now. We're, so I should probably let you tell us, first of all, thanks for coming on. And will you tell everyone uh, your website and where they can find you? All right. My website is paraganepress.com. And uh, you can find my books on Amazon and Kindle and Kindle KU. Awesome. Matthew Kent, uh, those links will be down in the description of the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for watching. And until next time, oh, I've got to come up with a new saying. Until next time, you can organize your bookshelf however you like. Just not spine in. <laughs>